0: This morning's reading comes from Romans, chapter 3. No, I think I've got that wrong, sorry. Um, Romans 12, (laughs) beginning at verse 3. And you can find it on page 1139 in the Church Bibles. Page 1139. though many from one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully.
1: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we can learn from it. And Father, we pray that you'll be with us this morning. As we look at this passage from Romans 12, help us to understand it. Help us to understand its relevance to us today. Amen. Well, I don't know whether it was accident or design, but someone has chosen a wonderful verse for the day of my retirement. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Makes you wonder. It makes you wonder if it's a good idea to invite the Apostle Paul to speak at your retirement event. I mean, after all, when retirement events come along, there's there's one or two unwritten rules. Be nice. Don't rock the boat. You don't actually need to say that. Say something positive. There must be something. Oh, and don't invite Paul to make a speech. You'll only ruin it. But perhaps on a day like today, Paul's words are a reality check, a reminder that none of us should believe everything that our mother said about us. Indeed, you could say that this idea is one of the undercurrents that runs through the whole of the book of Romans. You know, for instance, if you go back to, to chapter 3 and verse 27, for instance, you'll find that Paul asks a question. Where then is boasting? And his answer is, It's excluded. You could look at chapter 9 and verse 16, where Paul spells out for us everything that God does for those who trust him. He says, it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It's not because you have higher motives than other people, the people around you. It's not because you've tried harder to please God than some people you could mention. It's not because you're better than than ordinary folk. It's all because God has shown you mercy. Mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. None of us are anything like as special as we sometimes think we are. It's God who's special. And it's only because of the special things that God has done that we have anything to boast about at all. Chapter 11, the chapter we were looking at a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that Paul is specifically talking about is people from a Gentile background who'd put their faith in Jesus and perhaps, were perhaps tempted to look down on those from a Jewish background. Perhaps they felt that Jewish background Christians hadn't embraced the full freedom that Jesus brings in the way that they had. And what does Paul have to say? Do not consider yourself to be superior. In other words, don't think of yourself more highly Than you ought. Up to the end of chapter 11, uh, Paul has been telling us all that God wants to do for those who put their trust in him. From chapter 12 onwards, however, the focus changes from what God has done to how we should respond. In view of everything that God has done for us, making it possible for men and women to be justified by faith, how should we live? We've been forgiven and accepted by God. We're heard and supported by God. God helps us in our day-to-day lives. So given all this, how should we live as justified people? Now we had the start of the answer last week when Phil Washington spoke about the first two verses of chapter 12. In those two verses, there are a couple of broad-brush answers. Just as Jesus was willing to be a sacrifice... We should have a similar attitude and approach to life. And part of this is to reorientate our thinking, to bring it into line with the way that God sees things. But from verse 3 in chapter 12, Paul seems to focus in on living as justified people in real situations. Starting with living as justified people in the church, the community of people who've put their trust in Jesus. Now, later on, Paul will open this out and looking at living as justified people in other situations and contexts. But he starts with a focus on our life in the church. And the first thing he calls for, for those who live as justified people, is for realism. And that brings us back to verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. You know, this is a sit up and pay attention statement. Paul goes to trouble to flag up that he thinks this is important. For by the grace God has given me, Paul is calling on his apostolic authority. He's drawing attention to the fact that God has called him for a specific ministry. I say to every one of you, You know, this isn't just for some of the Christians in Rome. This was for all of them. And this isn't just for some of the Christians in Hove that near to hear this. It's for all of us. It's not just for some of the Christians who live in Worthing. It's for all of them. And what's so important that it needs this special instruction? Paul wants each one of us to be realistic about ourselves. Realistic in two ways, taking the negative, we shouldn't have inflated ideas about our own importance, about our abilities, about the impact we make, about how much fun we are at a party. Do you not think of yourselves more highly than you ought? Now, I guess this was a temptation of the first century. Paul wouldn't have spoken about it if it wasn't. certainly been a temptation in every generation. And it's perhaps a particularly acute temptation in our own time because what do people tell us very often that our big problem is in the 21st century? The thing that's so terrible, low self-esteem. This is our big trouble. It's only our low self-esteem that prevents each one of us becoming the next president of the United States. The fact that most of us are not natural-born Americans is not a problem, apparently. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. The Bible tells us that low self-esteem is the least of our worries. The big dangers are self-centeredness and an egocentric attitude. But that's just one side of it. Paul is not asking us to embrace low self-esteem But to think of ourselves with sober judgment, to have a realistic view of ourselves, a balanced view, to know our weaknesses, yes, to recognize that we're not as smart as we sometimes like to think we are, but also to embrace our strengths and our abilities and the things that we can do well as well. You know, Paul's phrase sober judgment is an interesting one. What's the opposite of being sober? I rather think it's being drunk, and, and how do drunk people tend to see themselves? Will Fife was a well-known Scottish music hall artist in the 1930s and the 1940s. His most famous song was a song called Glasgow Belongs to Me. Now, we're going to translate the next bit of it along the way for the benefit of any English people who may be in the congregation this morning. Um... Uh, but the closing lines of the chorus go like this. When I get a couple of drinks on a Saturday, Glasgow belongs to me. Like, the, like many songs that have stood the test of time, it was a song that was built on a real-life observation. Now, there are, as ever, you know, it was a long time ago, and there are slightly various various, different uh Versions of the story that are doing the rounds but the broad essentials of the story was this, Will Fife was in Glasgow's central railway station and he observed a man that had obviously had more than a couple of drinks you know what I mean um, and uh, this man got into a conversation and the conversation wasn't going terribly well because he had had more than a couple of drinks and in order to get some sort of sense out of the man, the man was asked you know, do you belong to Glasgow? Now, that's a Scottish idiom for, do you live in one of the most wonderful cities in the known universe? And this man, who up until this point had been a bit legless, so the story goes, pulled himself to his full height and said, no, Glasgow belongs to me. Now, of course, it didn't. But that's what alcohol does to you. It causes you to exaggerate. It causes you to have an extreme and an inflated idea of yourself in one of two ways. It can either give you an extremely inflated positive view of yourself or it can give you an extremely inflated negative view of yourself. You know those miserable people you see sitting in the corner at parties grumbling that it's a rotten party and nobody likes them? That's what alcohol can do to you as well. How do drunk people see themselves? They see themselves in extremes. Extremely special or extremely not special. But what Paul is saying is, don't look at yourself that way. Look at yourself with sober judgment. Because being sober means being in touch with reality. Why are there such strong laws about driving under the influence of alcohol? It's because no one wants people driving a bus down Holmes Avenue when they're not in touch with reality. And being in touch with reality means... Not having an overinflated idea of yourself or downplaying your abilities. In this context, Paul is not asking you to be so terribly, terribly humble and to see everyone else as much brighter or better than yourself, but to be realistic, to see ourselves as we really are. False modesty is perhaps better than pride, but not by much. We need to recognize what we're good at as well as where we have weaknesses why because that will enable us to serve god to serve the church to serve our communities in a good and positive way we will actually be able to recognize where we can make a useful contribution where we can make a difference and do it because we're realistic about what we can do and how we can most helpfully most helpfully be involved But how are we supposed to make that realistic evaluation? Well, Paul's advice is that, as it says in verse 3, is that we do it in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each one of you. Paul isn't saying that when you think of yourself of sober judgment, you can compare yourself with, with anything you like. There's an interesting verse in 2 Corinthians. It's chapter 10 and verse 12, where Paul makes a comment about people who are perhaps taken up with their own importance. This is what he says. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. Of course they're not. When we're thinking about ourselves, we need something a little bit more reliable than our own ego to compare ourselves with. And that reliable something is the faith that God has given to each and every one Christian believer. It's about what God has revealed to us in Jesus, that we can test our motives, assess our priorities, judge our actions, review our words. Now, of course, Paul's call for realism about ourselves has a wider relevance to our lives beyond our involvement in the church. But for the moment, this is where Paul's focus is, our relationship within the church. And that brings us to the second thing, that Paul is calling for, and that's harmony. I don't know how you respond to that word, harmony. I suspect it's gone a bit out of fashion. We tend to think of it as a a weak word, a wishy-washy word, a bland word. You know, harmony, it's not terribly interesting, there's nothing interesting happening here. It's probably because we live in times where people tend to value extremes. You may have noticed that in the political life of our country at the moment. You may have noticed that in the way people handle themselves on social media. We live in an age of extremes. And consequently, we've kind of lost an appreciation of the strength of the word harmony. Harmony is about working with other people to create something good the opposite is perhaps discord working at cross purposes with other people to create chaos yesterday ruth and i went to hear the internationally acclaimed worthing choral society do a concert in lansing okay i may not be thinking of them with entirely sober judgment there are one or two people in france who quite like them But we were listening to them. Now, the interesting thing about listening to a choir singing choral music is that it isn't made up of people who are all the same. They don't all have the same voices. There are some people like the sopranos who can do high notes. There are other people like the basses who can't do high notes for love nor money, but they can do low ones. And then you have the tenors and the altars who are somewhere in the middle. They're all different and they don't all sing at the same time you know sometimes when you're listening to a piece you can see that the basses well they're they're not doing anything they're just listening and they don't all sing the same notes you know the basses are singing one line the sopranos are singing another line the the tenors are singing another and the altars singing something else and that's what makes it worth listening to different people Different abilities, some can sing high notes, some can sing low ones, coming together to create something that would be impossible if they were all the same. And that's harmony, working together to create something good. And just one extra thing about the Worthing Choral Society. To be a member of the Worthing Choral Society, you don't need to be a brilliant singer, it's an open access choir. Providing you're not completely tone deaf and have got some enthusiasm, they will have you. And it still creates harmony. It still is people of a wide variety of skills and abilities coming together to create something good. Now, I've used the illustration of a choir But you'll remember that Paul uses the illustration of the human body. It's an illustration that Paul uses frequently in his letters to describe the way members of the church should be working together. You'll find the same illustration used in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, and in Colossians. And in some of the letters that Paul writes, he goes into more detail about this relationship within the church. But here in Romans, he's keeping it simple. For just as each of us has one body with many members... And these members don't have all the same function. So in Christ we though many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. The church people who are in Christ is made up of many members, individual Christians. They're all different, which means they come with different backgrounds and abilities. But we belong to each other. And when we work together with God, we can create something good. In many ways, this is a much better image for the church than the one I used of the choir because churches, in my experience, are far more complicated than a choir. Indeed, that's one of the things that struck me when I arrived here at Bishop Hannington 10 years ago. I'd spent most of my working life working with Christian charities. Now, Christian charities, they have their quirks, they have their problems, they have their issues. But generally speaking, Christian charities, parachurch organizations, they tend to be fairly single-minded. You know, like Off the Fence, you know, they know they're working in Brighton and Hove, so they probably don't worry a great deal about what's happening in Doncaster. You know, they're quite focused geographically. And Off the Fence, they're involved in ministry to the homeless. They're involved in ministry to uh, vulnerable women. They're involved in ministry in schools. They're thinking about ministry to mental health. But there's lots of other things which they deliberately don't do. They're fairly single-minded. And they tend to have a relatively small staff churches do all sorts of things somebody rolls up into the, auto, into the church office and says has the church ever thought about doing this no we haven't well what are you going to do about it and we have far more people involved in the work of a ministry because we've got so many volunteers churches are complicated my successors make a note they're complicated a bit like our body It's an excellent illustration for the church. And obviously, you know, for the body to work, for any organization to work, it's important that the various bits of the body are coordinated. If your two legs, for instance, had different ideas about where they wanted to go, you know, your left leg wanted to go to Brighton and your left leg wanted to go to Worthing, where would you go? Nowhere. You know, your two hands have never got involved in a fight with each other, I hope. Indeed, your two hands cooperate with each other to get things done. The parts of the body are there because they're useful and they're important. But again, Paul is taking this just one stage further by reminding us that our contribution to the health of the church is not just the sum of our natural abilities, personality, and life experience. It's part of it. But in verse 6, he points out that there is also a a supernatural dimension to the contribution that each member of the church makes to the church. We have different gifts, he tells us, according to the grace given to each one of us. Now again, in some of Paul's other letters, he spells this out in more detail. But in the second half of that verse, he's reminding us that Paul is not thinking about natural abilities, but special God-given gifts and abilities that help us to make the church stronger. We have different gifts, and they're the result of God's grace, God being good to us. And because these gifts are God-given, it means that they're not arbitrary or the result of chance. They're not the result of our personal choice, our personal practice, or our personal effort, though, of course, we can strengthen them when we've got them. They're given to us according to the grace given to each one of us. They are God's gift to us. There's a divine choice in the special God gives to each one of us. We may not be God's gift to the church, but God has given each one of us gifts for the church. Now you'll see that Paul includes a list of some of those gifts that God gives to Christian believers. It's not a comprehensive list. It's just a selection of some of them. In some of Paul's other letters, you'll find that there are other lists of gifts. And again, they're all different. In fact, the only thing that these lists really have in common is the fact that they're different. Sometimes he will refer to a particular gift more than once. In some of the lists, it's the only reference to some of these gifts. And one of the things that that tells us is that there were probably other gifts that Paul would have had at the back of his mind, which he never actually included in one of his letters. All the gifts listed in the New Testament is not an exhaustive list, it's an indicative list. You know, the key idea that we need to understand from all this is that what Paul is really emphasizing is not saying focus on these particular gifts, but understand the diversity of them, just how many they are, the breadth of them. Indeed, one of the dangers that these lists can actually sometimes create is that become preoccupied with an individual gift and try to understand what exactly Paul had in mind when he was talking about one. Now, I suppose this may be helpful up to a point, but it can also be frustrating It can be frustrating because one of the problems we have with some of the the gifts that Paul refers to that are listed in the New Testament is that we don't always know exactly what they were. I mean, take the, well, let's take the the gift of prophecy, for instance. Um, You know, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find several references to this gift along the way. You'll find it being referred to. You'll find one or two examples of it being used in practice. But for all that, nowhere in the New Testament does it it precisely explain what the gift was. You know, it's not like a dictionary where there's a title and a definition. You won't find that in the New Testament. And that's why you will find out that when Christians discuss the question of what exactly prophecy means in the New Testament, you'll find there are lots of opinions, but maybe not a definitive answer. Now, obviously, some of you are going to be talking about this sermon and this passage in your small groups, and you may get involved in discussions about what some of these gifts mean. Now, if you find that helpful, go for it. But just remember, it may not be possible to come up with a definitive answer to some of the questions you pose. If you do, the entire Christian world would be very interested to hear from you. But as I was saying, Paul is not writing these words here to explain the meaning of prophecy or any of the other gifts. What Paul wants us to understand is that there are all sorts of people in the church with all sorts of natural abilities and all sorts of God-given gifts. It's the diversity he wants us to get hold of. And all this diversity it makes the church effective. But only if we use our abilities, our experience, our gifts in harmony with one another. We're not meant to be just a loose collection of individuals each doing our own thing. The church is about diversity coming together to create harmony. Harmony is about coming together to create something good. It's not about a superstar performer. It's about every member of the body, every member of the choir, everyone being involved. And that brings us to the third idea that Paul wants us to get hold of. Paul is calling for selflessness. Paul has called for realism about ourselves, not having an inflated idea of ourselves, but nevertheless recognizing our strengths and the gifts that God has given to us. He's spoken about the way in which the contribution of individual members of the church working together makes it effective, but none of this will count for very much unless we're willing to do something. This is a passage about unity in the church, but a very specific form of unity, because it only works to the extent that we're willing to get involved that we're willing to be selfless I'm told that the National Trust has over 4 million members that's a lot and I guess those 4 million members are all broadly in sympathy and agreement with what the National Trust is about but I suspect most of them are a bit like me Their only real contribution is spending money in the tea shop. There are about 60,000 volunteers volunteering with the National Trust. They're the people who make it work. Not, Not freeloaders like me. It's the people who are willing to put time and effort into the National Trust's activities. Willing to give time. Willing to give effort. Willing to give skill. And that's Paul's point. If you have an ability, a gift that will benefit the church, if God has given you something that will strengthen the church, we need to be selfless in our attitude towards using it. It's one of the key ideas that comes out of this list of gifts from verse 6. If you've got it, don't flaunt it. Use it. Use it productively. Use it positively. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. If it's serving, serve. If it's teaching, well, teach. If it's to encourage, well, encourage people. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Give generously, lead diligently, show mercy cheerfully. This is the language of going beyond the call of duty of selflessness you know people can lead in a sort of lackadaisical half-hearted way can't they? whenever there's a decision the one thing you can be sure about is they won't be there and people can well, they can encourage in a sort of half-hearted way that doesn't actually encourage you at all and people can try to teach, but not really put the hours of preparation in before they stand up to speak. You know, uh, we can do all these things badly. But what Paul is saying is do them selflessly, put the effort in. You know, if you're going to lead, well, do it properly. If you're going to teach, do it properly. If you're going to give, well, do it cheerfully. And did you notice something else about this list of of gifts that Paul mentions in this particular passage? You know, most of them are actually rather quite ordinary. I mean, simple could be as simple as helping to serve the tea after a service. That's serving. Leading. Well, I grant you that sometimes leading a church can be a little bit complicated, but leading a church cleaning team isn't quite as complicated. And there are lots of things that need to be led in the life and the ministry of this church that aren't desperately time-consuming and aren't just desperately difficult. Encouraging. I mean, what's complicated about encouraging somebody? Giving. It may not be something we always find easy, but you don't need a degree to do it. And the truth is that a lot of things that need to be done around a church, that need to be done around this church, aren't all that complicated. Yes, they may need a particular skill or an ability or a gift, but most of those skills and abilities aren't ones that are out of the ordinary. But they do need a selfless attitude and a willingness, a willingness to get involved. I guess that it's a natural human desire to do something impressive, to do something spectacular, to do something that's going to get you noticed. That's part of human nature. Maybe part of human nature, but you know what? All God wants of each one of us is something useful. And you know, I find that incredibly encouraging. Because the reality is that most of us will never have the opportunity to do something spectacular. Most of us probably don't have the special skills and abilities and gifts and character to do something really impressive. But doing something useful, that can't be all that difficult, can it? Amen.